Hey everyone, welcome to the fourth episode of the Mark Podcast. Thanks for listening. Remember, you can always contact me at themarkpodcast at gmail.com or themarkpodcast on Twitter. In this show, I interviewed Doug Calhoun, who, like me, grew up in Seattle and also, like me, spent some time in Arizona. Uh, he also spent some time in China teaching English for a number of years. And so he has some very interesting experiences in regards to that. And he's actually has a number of other experiences, including um, experience doing advanced unicycling. So a lot to talk about with Doug, and uh, I hope you enjoy it. Oh, Confucius did this, and Confucius ideas say this. They don't get into like... It's kind of hard to apply Confucius ideas to the modern world because the world of his world was so different. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. I, I like the fact you've got maps here in the... On the walls. I, I'm another guy that likes to have maps on the walls just because it kind of gives me a global perspective on things. Yeah, yeah, and no, I've always loved maps. Yeah. Um, Doug Calhoun. Uh, how you doing, Doug? Good, good. It's good to be here. Thanks. Good. Doug, Doug, we actually grew up in the same exact town, the same city, Bellevue, Washington, which is a suburb of Seattle. Yeah. Doug, you've lived a very interesting life, so we'll just kind of go through um, piece by piece in the pocket. What was it like growing up in Bellevue at the time you grew up? Bellevue's kind of a, a great place, you know. It's, uh, I guess it's uh, not, nothing really outstanding about it, just it's just kind of, you know. So your dad was in, he worked for Boeing, right? Yeah. Back in stuff, like back yeah. when Boeing was like, their headquarters was, everything was in Seattle and... Yes. Boeing was pretty much the number one employer, because that's before Microsoft came in and kind of right, yeah, stole the show, so to speak. Yeah, I think um, my father and my grandfather were both with Boeing. What was that like? I mean, do they talk a lot about their work and kind of, hey, we're building this new like, yeah, 747? Yeah, my or... grandfather was a key guy that um, designed, I think, one of the, the jet foil. The jet foil ferries that are used to... Actually, to go from Hong Kong to Macau, they have those high-speed jet foils. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. I've actually, I've seen those. Yeah. Yeah. I've ridden that, actually, once before. Yeah, a lot of people have it. So, anyway, I think he was one of the guys that designed, you know, something on that. <clears throat> so, he's an engineer. Yeah. Right? right, an engineer? Yeah. Cool. And then, was your dad also an engineer? No. Or? No, he was just a business guy. He was in charge of this uh, movie studio where they made movies, or not movies, but, you know, Films. Promotional kind of videos. Promotional. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So he did the promotional videos that went out to like other companies and yeah, stuff? Yeah, just uh, kind of uh, informational kind of stuff. Mm. Cool. Did he talk about work a lot or was he... No. Kinda... No. <laughs> very, very rarely. In fact, I really don't know. Uh, it wasn't until after he passed away that I ended up learning a lot of stuff about him, which was kind of interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, my you know my dad actually knew your dad actually. I don't know yeah, you mentioned him. that. Um, I, I don't know how well he knew him, but he said yeah, he remembered him. It's I hard told to say him, yeah, so, yeah. It seems like anybody that was, a lot of people know him. Yeah. Well, your dad. You said your dad was kind of like the Bellevue guy. I mean, like he kind of knew everyone <laughs> in Bellevue, <laughs> yeah. right? He was kind yeah. of really well known. Yeah. In town. Well, that's cool. So you were you were there, and then you left. You left Bellevue, and I sure. I think I left there about when I was about eighteen, and then I've never really been back there except I think I was back there for like like a year or so, and that was kind of uh, I was there working for a a Taiwanese tour group. Really. Yeah, and that was when I ended up going to Asia for the first time. Was 
it was just kind of the jumping off point. I worked for these guys doing their summer tour of the United States. So it was a Chinese, they would bring like Taiwanese tourists to yes. America. Yeah. And I guess you were learning Chinese probably at the time a little bit. And so yeah. you were kind of like, hey, it's a way I can learn Chinese. And also. Yeah, exactly. That's and uh, I mean, that's back when like the relations between Taiwan and the U.S. were strong. And, you know, mainland China was still a little bit. I mean, it was developing between the U.S., but the U.S. Yeah. had better relations with Taiwan yeah. than it did with the rest of China. But, like, you, so you left to China to teach, to Taiwan, teach English. which is China, of course. Okay, so you went to Taiwan first. Yeah. And yes. then you taught English? I did, yeah. I spent a couple of years there. Okay, cool. And yeah. then, uh, how was that? Uh, that was very, that was a good experience. Uh, Taiwan's quite a bit different in some ways from the mainland China, really. Um, a lot more modern. Yeah, Taiwan is a real modern place. You know, everybody rides motors. When I was there, drove motorcycles and, uh, you know, high. It was, you know, you can see American movies anytime you want to. You know, it's very connected. The mainland was like probably maybe 20 to 30 years behind at that time. Now, I don't know what it's like nowadays. I, I imagine it's changed quite a bit in the last decade, but. Um, and like the early, so in the early 90s, Taiwan was fast place, and then China was, I guess you went to China as well around the That's same right, time? That's right, yeah, or? in the 90s, yeah. Cool. And then, I mean, was it, was it so I guess it was a lot harder for you to, to live in, in mainland China at the time? Um, I mean, which one was more exciting, I guess? Cause, yeah, exciting in different ways, really. Um, mainland China was kind of a lot, in some ways, easier, okay? Because you didn't have to fight traffic on your motorcycle. In Taiwan, you have to get up at like 6 in the morning, get on a motorcycle, and just fight through downtown Taipei or either that or you're getting going to a train station and you're commuting and you're going doing all kinds of stuff in the main in mainland you're on the in the middle of some campus where they give you you know they put you up on the school they pay all your you know and uh you just walk 100 feet to the other building oh. and since you're it's college you, you're doing like you know four five classes a week oh wow yeah, it's like... Wow, it's not, it's not too bad. Wow. Not at all, no. It was pretty laid back. And, you know, the rest, so you have a lot of downtime in the main. So it was a pretty easy way of life. But China's a lot more... wasn't as well developed. I mean, there's not a... So in that sense, it was quite different. So you're, yeah, you're right in the middle of... You're, you, the whole... You're on this campus, and that's the whole world, you know. Um, I mean, you can go off campus, you know, outside of work hours, but... Yeah. So I think it was a lot easier. I, you were really kind of part of that whole kind of first wave of English teachers going to mainland China, right? Because I, mean, I think it, so. became, it, was, it became very popular later, and a lot of people have done it, but there weren't that many when you were well, there, right? Well, it, it was starting to get somewhat popular. I mean, it's not like if you were to go back, there was once a time where no Westerners went to China. Right. Um, except for, like, missionaries of some sort, and... Uh, it was just very rare to have ever spend time in China unless you were some kind of a government, you know, thing. Um, so I was kind of part of this. Yeah, it was kind of early, but it wasn't like it was completely unheard of either. So it was, yeah, but it was, I think nowadays it's a lot different. Yeah. I've heard. Yeah, now it's just kind of like a business. Like show up, hey, you got your year contract, we're going to pay you. I mean, they, they pay okay now. They it pay pays good. You see, at the time I was, you know, making like maybe... By U.S. dollars, it was very, very low, but it was... Was there any, like, cultural um, time? It's it hard to explain. It's, in China, if you're an American, 
when I was there, and I think it's probably similar. I don't. I doubt that that's changed that much now. But um, you're always you're either treated like a celebrity or maybe yeah. some kind of a a dangerous kind of a <laughs> alien. Um, so you're either, and it's mostly good. Most of the time, people are going to be very deferential to you and respectful. Yeah. And then you'll run into times where you'll they'll treat you like some kind of a subhuman. But uh, never, never really is an equal. I mean, it's often it's it's very cordial, it's very friendly in some cases, but you're you're very rarely, very rarely did you, do you have a chance to really be an equal. But it's having said that, it's hard to explain exactly. Well, in China, they've always looked at, or at least according to the little bit of history I've read about China, I mean, it's it's often had this view of outsiders as kind of being like the barbarians, you know, kind of the uncivilized ones who are, who are not lucky enough to be born in China. Yeah, I think that's there's some definitely truth to that. Uh, just the very word for foreigner that's used in, in China. Foreign is, devil. Well, that's you don't hear that too much. You occasionally, I think I heard that one time in the Taiwan train station. I didn't really hear that too often. But the word that's very commonly used in, in the mainland China is lao wai, which is, what it really means is, wai means foreign, outside. It means outsider. And then lao is always or eternal. So the word kind of means the, eter the eternal outsider. Yeah. Or the perpetual outsider. Somebody that is always an outsider could never be an insider kind of a thing. That's the connotation. So it seems kind of like a harsh word. I think, to my ear anyway, and a lot of times we we also have the word foreigner, mm -hmm. which I don't know what that really means, foreign, to be foreign. Someone who's a foreigner is, is a foreigner. It's not particularly a great word. But for some reason, the, the, to call someone a perpetual and always foreigner, outsider, yeah. seems a little harsh. And uh, it really used to, I remember every time somebody would I'd hear that word, la why, it used to just kind of bug me. It was never, they were never really rude about it or impolite. just kind of bugged me. And I, occasionally I would talk to them about it. I'd go, you know, that, that sound, you always have to refer to me as the, out, the outsider. I mean, yeah, I, and then they'd always kind of look puzzled and they'd say, but, but you are a foreigner. And I'd go, well, yeah, but <laughs> I, don't, I don't know why you always... And it was just really hard to communicate along those lines. But after a while, after a while, I remember one time it just kind of, I made peace with it. It was like, that's just the way it is. And uh, and then I started referring to myself as that, too. <laughs> wow. Yeah, well, say, I think, yeah, I'm, I think, I'm the uh, white guy, you know. The, yeah, there's another one, I think, in Cantonese, I think it's Guaylo, which is like ghost, ghost person, yeah. ghost guy. Guaylao, yeah, I think in the Mandarin Guilao. pronunciation. Yeah, and if you refer to it yourself, it, it's pretty funny for them, because it's like, oh yeah, they get it, you know, they're a ghost. Because yeah, they know it's a little bit offensive, but it's also kind of like right. what they refer to. So I got to that point, and I think things went a lot smoother after that, you know. Yeah. You just, you know, you, that's one thing. There's a tendency for Americans to try and think that you can fit in if you're just uh, tolerant enough or if you... You know, and but, but not really. <laughs> not I, really. I think it's, not really. well. I think no. Well, or it's pretty really, tough, I guess. If not, yeah. Yeah. I think you can fit in if you just know your place and the role you play within that society. Then you can kind of find a. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think that's that's kind of like life in general too, right? No matter where you are, you got to kind of find your your way to fit. And I think in American culture, we've been a little bit more tolerant for like the outsider, or those that are like a little bit different and creative, as, as long as you have success. You know, like people like right. Steve Jobs and stuff, I mean, these other kind of more weird 
a little different people, they can be very normal the longer they're like, as long as they're like getting success and things are going, you know, exactly, or, yeah. or finding their place, I guess, or whatever. Yeah, I think that is the key to life is to kind of know what you are and to not, so you, you act and it's not an affectation, it's just the real thing. I think I heard an interview with the singer Dolly Parton the other day and they asked her what her secret to success was and she said to find out who you are and then do it on purpose. <laughs> and I kind of thought, well, that's quite profound, really. It's not easy to do to find out who you are and to do it on purpose. It's hard to, you know, yeah, be well, yourself without affectation. Well, I think the implication there is, right, you, you kind of find yourself who you are by, like, not really trying something. You just kind of find what's natural by, like, experimenting or whatever. And then you have to, like, after you discover that, like, you try to actually control it and, you know, kind of be that. Exactly. Well, with, I think, with some effort, I guess, or whatever. Yeah, I think that's it. That's, uh, I think that's the idea. Yeah. Um, I wonder if I would have understood that, say, 10 years ago. Probably would have understood it, but yeah. it's hard to say. So you were in China for, what, I guess, Taiwan and, and mainland China, a total of about, what, four or five years altogether? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Wow. And while you were there, um, I have a lot of friends who've taught English in other countries, but I've, I've never done it myself. Um, I've visited friends, I've been to Asia and China a few times, but... Um, it seemed like a lot of the different people that teach English, they kind of, they kind of formed a pretty strong bond and connection with each other, and you know, there's kind of a friendship, you know, that kind of connects with all these expats living abroad. I mean, was that was that some of your experience there too? I mean, did you find that the the foreigners there you could easily kind of form friendships with and connections with, or yeah, or yeah, yeah, I definitely that's true. It's funny. Yeah. Um, I was talking to this girl from England one time. Yeah. And I, you know, and I was just saying, hey, you know, you, you, you British, you kind of remind me a lot of Americans. Yeah. And she was going, well, that's good to know. And then she goes, but if you were to go to London, yeah. they would probably be different. It's like all the foreigners, when they're in China, they're kind of in the same boat, you know. And so, you know, but I, I've never been to Europe, actually. Mm -hmm. But I've heard that maybe there's a little bit of, you know, little bit anti-Americanism for, I don't know, that's what this girl was telling me, that, you, you know, it's different here, but uh, if it were... You ever been, to, you said you were actually, you're doing a trip to Spain, right? This. Uh, I think I'm going there this summer, yeah. This summer? You're doing like a bike trip or something? No, I was thinking, I, I would definitely would like to incorporate some of that, just see what that's, see what people are, you know, riding in Europe and, and that sort of thing, but I hadn't, I mean, it's a long bike ride from here, but... <laughs> <laughs> Perhaps I'd have to. Yeah. Well, you're flying to Spain, right? And then yeah, and then you're gonna do, and then you're gonna spend about a week or so in Spain, yeah, or something like that. Yeah, I, I I spent a few like about five days in Spain a few years ago. It's 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 a really cool. Country. Let's go here. It's yeah, fun. It's probably I mean what, probably of the European countries is probably one of the kind of most friendly to travelers. I think, in in my opinion, I think it's just. There's a lot to do. There's a good mix of like sites. You got pretty good weather. You know, you got you know pretty open people that are pretty friendly, and it's just got a good blend of things. It's a real easy place to go. And you speak Spanish, right? Uh, yeah, so. a little bit, yeah, yeah. I'm so, so you so you did the so so you speak Spanish, and then you decided you wanted to learn Chinese. So you went to China for a while, taught English, learned Chinese, and then somewhere in the mix of that, you. You, you did your college undergraduate at Arizona State University. Yeah. And then um, 
I actually, I worked by there for a few years at U.S. Airways. Yeah, you mentioned that. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, you were in Tempe, huh? Right by A Mountain, actually. Yeah. You know where that is? I do. I know it very well. Yeah, it's right by, you can just, we would go up there for lunch and just like, you know, hike up to the top of it. It's like 10 minutes. I had a job at night where I was the guy, I was the night watch guy at the stadium there, right on the base of the A Mountain. Yeah. So my job was every night I would walk around the perimeter of that stadium and I had to punch a time card, or uh, I had this clock on a chain that I would carry around my shoulder. It, it weighed probably a, a, two pounds or something like it. It was just, just a clock. And I had to stick this thing into various points along the perimeter to prove that I was there because I was the only guy in the whole stadium. Uh, I had the place to myself all night long. And so in order to make sure that I was doing my job, I had to check. I had to carry this clock around and punch it in at various points along the, the perimeter. So I, at nighttime, all, I had the stadium to myself, and I would walk around there all night long. And, uh, you know, it was right there. You could see the mountain. You could see owls flying around at night. It was pretty exciting. Did you ever see anything? Was there ever any, like, uh, I guess, person or something like that you had to ask Interesting, no. Never. Never? It was a pretty uneventful job. The most exciting thing that was going on was just wildlife. You know, like, you see, I, I got to see owls flying, which is kind of a weird thing. Yeah. That was kind of all right. It, owls can be pretty interesting. They can be kind of creepy sometimes. Yeah. I'm sure, that, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and when you were there, like, that whole area, like, like it's been a little more developed now. They have, like, Tempe Town Lake and all these, like, new condos and stuff around there. But when you were there, it was it was kind of just, like, you just had the, the Salt River or whatever, and just it was just kind of, like, still mostly desert and stuff, right? You had the university and... No, I was referring was most of... Most of my desert observation was from Tucson. Oh, okay, When I was okay, in that okay. Tempe area, that... It was, yeah... It's that's that's a sprawled-out area. Okay, you know? yeah. That's the greater Phoenix, you know... Which did you prefer, I guess, because you did ASU and then you went to University of Arizona. Which did you, which city did you prefer? I mean, Tucson's not quite as hot. Tucson. Tucson? Tucson is kind of a different place. It's its own place. Whereas Tempe, Phoenix, that's just kind of this one. It's a nice place, though. Arizona's a beautiful state. Yeah. So, so you liked Tucson better? And then a well, I don't know about that. There's different things about both places. So, so you did a you did a PhD there, or, or you start you did some PhD studies um, yeah. at University of Arizona, and what was it? it was Chinese history or Chinese? Yeah, um, yeah, it was. Well, yeah, it was Chinese. It was kind of a interdisciplinary thing. It was Chinese history, literature, and history, kind of a thing. The Ming Dynasty, you know, certain anyway. And uh, how? But how I started was out. I started out studying dialectology. Anyway. Wow. What is dialectology? I think you might need to explain that to some That's people. the various yeah. forms that different languages take on. For example, a different language would be like what? French and Italian. Those are two different languages. Yeah, yeah. Um, so in order, but if, it's, if they share one of, I think, three things in common, whether it be the alphabet, the vocabulary, or the syntax, the grammar, then they are not different languages, but they are dialects of the same language. Which means, oh, so example, like, I don't know, Sicilian would be not a language, but a dialect of Italian. Because it's basically, you know, they write with the same Italian alphabet, they write with the, uh, so that's what a dialect is. And, and of course in China it's a huge deal because, well, see, China's a different place though because of the fact they have a logographic writing, they don't have an alphabet. So all of the Chinese dialects share the same written language. Mm. 
So that makes any language, no matter how different it is, dialects rather than different languages. But I think that if you were to look at it the way we look at European languages, Cantonese is very different from, say, Mandarin. So but is that a dialect or is that Cantonese a whole other language? Cantonese is considered a dialect because of the fact that they share the same writing. When, when was the writing system imposed? Though? Was that just kind of like when they had a kingdom, like the Ming Dynasty or something like that? It and they started just kind out of by put the way they would drill, they would carve holes in oracle bones, the uh, the shoulder bone of oxen, they would throw it, it was, goes back to the early days of Chinese civilization, oh. their shamanistic roots where they would prognosticate using carving into oracle bones, uh-huh. throwing them on the fire, and the way the, the, the holes they initially carved would crack and form images which would provide insights that the leader, the shaman, would use to rule. And he was, that's a way of, and so that's the origins of the Chinese writing. It goes back a long ways, yeah. Other parts, certain parts of China, they probably developed at different speeds, right? So you have the Cantonese language, they kind of formed like kind of their own kind of language for a while, even though they had the similar writing, but they were kind of separated from each other, right? Because I mean, China's a big big place, there's a lot of dialects, right? Yeah, it's a big country, they've got a lot of vast geographical regions, and uh, so that was something with a developed with time yeah right that's interesting so so you studied that for a while yeah. and in the mix of all this we're jumping around you were in the army as well yeah and uh how long were you in the army for i was in the national guard for 10 years um wow this was going on interspersed with all of this too yeah it was before i actually uh let's see what was it i went to yeah national, guard. national guard how'd you decide to do it? you just wanted to just wanted to enlist decided to be yeah there. cool yeah and how, how was your experience there? What was it, what was it like? It was good. I, it's, the Army was, uh, I don't know, I, I think if I knew what I was getting into, I probably wouldn't have done it that way, but I'm glad I did it now, <laughs> you know? Because yeah. it was, yeah, it was, good, it was interesting. I mean, it was, yeah, I think I learned a side of America there, you know? You, you, it's a certain kind of, uh, you know, about my own country, you know? It's, you'd, I, I remember I was talking to people in America that I never would have gotten to know in Bellevue, Washington, or... Oh, Some yeah. of the other places I've been. Right. You know, the first time I'd ever dealt with Southerners, you know, like real hardcore Southerners that maybe didn't have a lot of formal education, you know. Mm-hmm. Like, um, that's kind of, uh, and I remember, you know, I, it was... And there was no major wars Yeah, there was. The uh, you served, right? Or uh, you know, there was, uh, we had some conflicts and interspersed in there. And, uh, so, so interesting. So you did that. And then, um, so let's kind of get up here a little bit towards, um, you've kind of, you've done all this China stuff. You got the army stuff. Um, you did university and, and you kind of like, you know, you've, one thing that you do now, um, which you seem to really like is unicycling. Mm-hmm. And, uh, what, what, what happened there? How'd you, how'd you get into unicycling? Well, you know, I've always liked bicycles. China, everybody, I, you know, I used to ride a bicycle a lot in China. And it's kind of a, most of the Chinese don't see it as being a recreational thing so much as it is just a way of getting around. But Yeah, that was actually when I was in Beijing. That was one of my favorite experiences. We got on bikes. We rode all around Beijing. And there's just thousands of bikes everywhere you go. But we're, we're riding just like with the Beijingers, you know. And it's kind of exciting. It's, it's yeah, it is, I think yeah. most of us that do it, we're kind of enjoying the novelty of it, you know. But for them, they're kind of... They might be hauling, you know, an oxygen tank on the back of their thing. Or like a baby in the basket or something. Or like maybe five different guys on the bike, you know. I've seen entire families on the bike. 
but for me, it was always a lot of fun, and, uh, you know, um, and so then, you know, I, I mean, I've always kind of, I like to adhere, I just kind of, it just kind of seemed like the next thing, you know, to take it up, and then I ended up really enjoying it. It's hard to explain, but uh, it's, it was kind of hard, it's a challenging thing, and just something, you know, if you've mastered something that's difficult, you have kind of an affinity towards it. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. And yeah. so it's kind of like, and it's different, it's, I don't know. And you just recently got a bike with like a really big tire. It's like almost thirty six or yeah, it's a thirty six inch wheeled tire. It's about three feet in diameter. It's really, really, really <laughs> big. Uh, it's bigger than any bicycle tire, and it just makes you really high up off the ground. And it's it's really a lot of fun. It, you can travel pretty fast on that, and it absorbs a lot of the jolts from the road. And it's uh, you know it's and it's and it's really you're really tall up there. You can you know you're tall. I mean I'm almost eight feet tall on on top of that thing. Wow, and you have hurt your. You've had a few injuries. Yeah, with unicycles, but that has not in any way deterred you. From <laughs> no, no, not really. Going, no, huh? I often think maybe it's not the best thing to do, but no, it hasn't actually. I, I still am uh, very committed to it. I have taken some safety precautions, though. I got a set of uh, steel reinforced cl- gloves that you know because it's because it, you smash your wrists a lot, right? Or your yeah. hands when you yeah. when you fall down, it's like. So you, um, there was this guy that I knew actually in high school um, who was into unicycling. His name was Dan Heaton, actually. He was a guy hmm. in my class, whatever. Bellevue? Yeah, yeah, in Bellevue. And um, it's crazy. He would tell me about unicycling. He'd be like, oh, yeah, we do unicycling. We actually go off-road. And he actually made it, he, he actually, they do like mountains. They would like climb yeah, no, up mountains on trails and do all this like kind of adventure and it's like it sounded really. Cr- I, I kind of thought like, wow, that's that sounds almost impossible to do that. Like, how do you go uphill? Because yeah, I just don't think you have that much control in a unicycle. But I get, I guess you can you can do that. If, yeah. I think in two thousand and eight, right after the Beijing Olympics, I was you know on a com- there was a commercial out. I think for like, it was for like Timberland or one of the um, you know, one of those kind of outdoor clothing mm-hmm. stores, and they were kind of talking about people that are doing these amazing things. And then I saw this guy in the commercial. I was like, wait a minute, that looks a lot like this guy. And they're showing him, like, you know, going all around, like, on the, I think, like, Mount Sai or those other, like, kind of mountains around Issaquah, like, around Seattle area. And he's, like, jumping on these, like, logs and, like, off them. And, and it said his name, Dan Heaton. And he's talking there. And he said, it was, yeah, it was really hard at first, but then we kept on doing it. And then. Dan Heaton is his And name? then other people. Yeah. And I, I guess, and I looked, he was like, yeah, I think he had, like, a sponsorship or something like that. No but, way. Yeah. So. I'll look, it, I'll look the guy up. I've, uh, yeah, I mean he's from Bellevue. Huh? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I don't, I don't know. Maybe it's just these like unicycle extras. You got, you know, something in the water. I think water. it's something in Bellevue. Yeah, it's a, actually the World Crab Walk. The, the the there's a guy from Issaquah that is the world record holder for the backwards crab walk. Oh yeah. And he also can do a you you can on he can do a Rubik's cube while jumping on a pogo stick. And he has the he's actually a double world record holder. Wow. Yeah, from Issaquah, Washington. And I think uh, I know some. Uh, he, I think he goes to Issaquah High School, or he's still a student there. Yeah, I know some people that know him. Oh, so he's a pretty young, pretty young. Yeah, he's like yeah. I I don't know. Like I think like growing up, there was a lot of friends I knew, people that talked a lot about getting the Guinness Book of World Records or or doing something that like would distinguish you, or something like the whole have like some like world title, like the best in the <laughs> world at, at like X or you know whatever the. Thing was, yeah. The, 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 I don't. I don't know. Is that something you you've seen as well? Oh yeah, no. I definitely. I've I've definitely aspired for some kind of record in the the Guinness's Guinness Book World Record. <laughs> well, I tried to get one a few years ago when I did this race around the world, 
Oh, yeah? I, I tried to just race around the world. Yeah, it was this crazy idea. I worked at U.S. Airways, so we had flight benefits. So I came up with this idea of flying nonstop from, like, the U.S. to, like, London to Tokyo to back to the U.S., and, like, three nonstop, like, flights, because you could do that. And it would only cost, like, a couple hundred bucks with the flight benefits. Yeah. So I challenged all these, like, four coworkers of mine to do it. Like, we'd race. Like, one, one team would go, like, east. One team would go west. And whoever got back to the office first, you know, leave, you, she'd leave on, like, Friday. And whoever got back on to the office first would, you know. How would you establish who was first? Well, just whoever got there. I mean, whoever got back first. You know, you'd show, like, your ticket. You... We had this system where you'd have to buy a Cinnabon when you leave, and then you buy a Cinnabon when you get back, and you have to have the receipt, you know? Because <laughs> Cinnabons are, like, at every airport. And so we got this one PR person, and we were trying to promote it with Cinnabon. And Cinnabon, they looked at our option. They responded politely, but never really went anywhere. But, but <laughs> Cinnabon World Travel Challenge. Yeah, because Cinnabon, we figured they're in, like, every airport, and, you know, people love Cinnabon, and... Um, yeah, we figured we could promote them and they could spend How did that us. go? Did it work out? I ended up yeah. doing it by myself. Nice. I, I ended up going solo. So I flew solo well, from Phoenix good. to London. What's that? Well, that's good for your world record thing. That way you don't have anyone else buying for your <laughs> category. I, I flew around. It was seventy about 70 hours because I got stuck in London for like about 12 hours and I missed the flight because the Korean Airlines lady would not let me on because she said I didn't have good identification or whatever and... It was a pain, so I, I got stuck overnight in the London airport in Heathrow, and then um, and then I flew around. So seventy two hours. That's impressive. I, that's quite good. But it might, yeah, I might be one of the best. I don't know. You're probably maybe not the gold, but you'd definitely <laughs> be a silver, bronze medal. An event I've always wanted to be the world record holder is is you know how like you're driving on the freeway and you you miss your exit. But you don't want to go do a U-turn, so you just kind of try and back up in the shoulder of the road. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'd like to get so I could do that for maybe a mile or two. You know, Again, though, I don't want to go for the gold necessarily, but I'd like to do well. <laughs> I think that's pretty risky, isn't it? I mean, like, it is, and I think it's probably a fairly... I don't know if there's a lot of people that have done it, so I think I could probably get the world record for maybe... Maybe not, it's hard to say. Yeah. Well, you have to have somebody like signal you, be like, hey, this is clear, you know... Or not clear. Or something. Yeah, yeah. You wouldn't want to just do it with the rearview mirror. The scariest time probably I ever had in a car was when a girl I was driving with. I was in the pa- I was in the back seat of this very small like uh, one of those like kind of like a smart car. You know what those are? Like those little like yeah. super compact. It wasn't a smart car, but it was like maybe like a Fit or one of those like very similar sized cars. And I'm in the back, and these two girls in the front, and they take a wrong turn, and then they stop. Like, right in the middle of that, like, triangle, like, that, the, the kill zone, or the suicide area, whatever you call it. And, th- th- like, right in the triangle. And they stay there for, like, about two or three minutes as they try to figure out where to go. And meanwhile, cars are, like, doing the same thing we're doing. You know how, like, sometimes cars make a turn late and they'll, they'll cross into that triangle area? Yeah. Because we're right in front of, like, where those, those, uh, those plastic containers, you know, are. So, like, we're, we're kind of... We're kind of far out in there, so they could easily just clip us very easily, and it was I actually was went terrifying. To, in Taiwan one time, I got into, I, I was driving along, and you know how, in, have you ever been to Taiwan? I haven't, no. I've okay, picture Beijing only, everybody's twice as fast on cars okay, and okay. motorcycles, you know, okay. you don't see as many bicyclists. Anyway, so there's, and there's no real lanes, you know, so I'm kind of going along uh, where the cars go, and then I guess the guy was parked off to the side, and he opens the car door... 
and I came on a, like a Vespa, and I just hit the car door, oh. and I flipped through the air and landed, and I wasn't wearing any kind of helmet. Nobody does it time when I, I don't wow. know, and I ended up really hurting my shoulder, um, oh, and uh, but uh, you know, and the, I'm totaled my motorcycle and everything, but I was with Man. some anyway. I was with some Chinese friends of mine who just ended up yelling and berating this motorist, and then he ended up. Somehow they got him to replace my motorcycle somehow, which was good. I um, did they pay for any hospital bills? You or know, that or not, not? I ended up going to the regular hospital just to be patched up afterwards. It was no big deal. I could still walk away and just kind of you know. Oh, so nothing was broken, I guess. No, not, not that I don't think so. Anyway, I had some okay. real pain in the shoulder, but it's like, and so I went to the regular hospital, and they kind of you know, but I was in pain, and then I went to a Chinese herbalist a couple days later, where they you know. And that guy did something. I don't know what it was. Some kind of massage or something. But that got rid of it. Really? To this day, I've never really felt any discomfort. Because I've heard shoulder injuries are, are tricky. So you believe in Chinese medicine? Uh, I don't, know what, I don't know what Chinese medicine is. I don't know what regular medicine is, to be honest with you. <laughs> so I really couldn't answer your question as to whether or not I believe in it. It's an interesting thing, though. I think they did a thing on PBS. on, on it's, it's not really scientific. In the sense of, you know, Western medicine is supposedly scientific. And Chinese medicine is more based on the traditional cosmology of things like that. Mm -hmm. Balancing the different five phases, you know, and things like that. And it's not exactly what we would call scientific, but it seems to, it seems to work in many cases. And that's kind of what they concluded by doing. They took some Harvard med doctors and... They spent like two years in China doing research on it. It was kind of an interesting thing. Oh, really? And they said it had some... They said, some hey, magic. we can't explain it, but it seems to, you know... Most of this stuff works it pretty kind well. Of those, those, those same doctors, they interviewed them before they went, they were like, you know, we're just... I mean, this is... It's not what we consider medicine. It's... I'm sure that it has probably some psychosomatic... Pro but afterwards, they were kind of saying, yeah, wow, we don't know what to say now. It was interesting. I don't know. I don't know that much. I, well, you know, this this girl, a friend of mine, actually, um, that lives in Hong Kong, She was. I was over there a year ago or two years ago, and we were talking about it, and she said, yeah, um, and she works, like, with companies, a lot of different companies, so she's very up into, like, the business side of things, and mm. and she was telling me, yeah, it's, like, Chinese medicine is very popular with Westerners now, or, or beca it's becoming a lot more popular um, with, I don't know, like, the European market or the American market, so I guess, you know, it's been growing. You like D.C.? You've been here for a few years, right? Yeah, yeah, it's an exciting place. There's always something going on. Every time you go into, uh, I guess my favorite place is the mall area because there's just always something going on, something global. I was there one time. I ended up getting interviewed by a Finnish television station one time. Yeah, so you're famous oh, back in Finland. Right? I that's I guess so. I mean, I'm, I'm not famous, of course, but I'm, I'm a guy that was, I've been a talking head on Finnish television. You know, some random guy in the street, you know. And uh, there's always something going on there. It's kind of an exciting place. You know, it's like, it's never a dull moment. I love that feeling of getting interviewed, you know, on, on like a TV station. Yeah. Um, when you have like no idea how famous it's going to be. So your imagination yeah, no can just say, oh, well, I can yeah, just you, you, the you make it out to be this huge thing. But it's like, probably. <laughs> it might just be like some late night. It could be some thing. spoof thing. Like, this is what idiot Americans think. <laughs> and, you know, and of course. Somebody did that. I think I was in... Um, but yeah, I was down in Vietnam, and uh, we were going to this one little um, little tourist area. We had all these birds in this like bird plantation, and they had a oh, TV wow. station. They like they like had a film crew, and they just had a camera, and they filmed me there. I said like probably like twenty words at the most, and then 
it was off. And then we tried to contact the people later, and then we couldn't get them, like, to give us, like, the clip or something like that. But yeah. I, I, they never, we never connected the dots or something. That would be so. a good souvenir, huh? Yeah, be interviewed on Vietnamese television. So you, you are probably, you're probably the Vietnamese equivalent of what I am in Finland, kind of. The well, I, I don't know. I mean, did you, you got, did you, did you check out with them? Did you get like, their I contacts? I, I, I didn't get it. They didn't give it. It was the same story as yours, you know. I wasn't able to follow up and get my, uh, yeah. Yeah, well, what's, what's kind of like one adventure that you got kind of got on your horizon. We, we talked about the Spain thing, you know, you're doing the Spain thing, that's what's one adventure. What, what's another adventure? You've had a lot of kind of adventures in your life. Is there something you really want to do or something you want to learn how to do? You know, that um, on the, something on the I want to learn how to do. That you're like, you know, or something, um, something like, you know, kind of an adventure. I've always kind of wanted thing. to learn knitting. You've always wanted to learn knitting? Knitting. It just looks really relaxing, and I know it's not really kind of a... a a macho it's activity. It's not a manly thing. It's not a manly thing, cool. and that, that bothers me. That's, that's why I, I, But you got to be tough to do it. I mean, it's not. You got to be. Easy. You've got to know who you are to be able to pull it off. Yeah. But it looks really relaxing to me. Like you know, I'll see like women at bus stops, and they'll be knitting, and it's just kind of a repetitive thing, kind of relaxing. And when they're done, they have some like you know something useful, like they'll have a sock or a uh, a scarf or something like that. That just seems kind of like a cool thing to be able to just kind of do something like that, a kind of a. And I think it would be cool, and you could do it to, you could, like, crochet golf club head covers, or yeah. you could, like, make one of those, like, drip mats for under the car to change, you know, what to, if you're working on your car and you need to, you know how you, you go under yeah, the car? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So there's things you could do that would be of use to, but it just seems like a really cool activity. It's something I've always kind of wanted to do, and I don't really talk about it openly because it's just not... You can talk about it here, man. This is a safe zone. This is a safe you zone. So, so that's always something that's kind of appealed to me. In, in a weird way, yeah. This girl that I know, I knew her in college, but I, I just saw her a few months ago. She's actually, like, selling these really nice handmade, like, sweaters and scarves and different, different things. That I think she, she knits them all out herself. She designs them. She knits them. She's, like, up all night, you know, kind of creating these new designs. And her hands, I think when I saw her, they were, like, really kind of, like, blistered and had, like, lots of ink on them because... It gets all messy. Yeah. But, but she sells them for like 500 bucks or like See, doesn't more. Doesn't that seem and, cool to have something that's kind of relaxing to yeah. do and you can make money off it? you got to hand it to someone like that. Well, and too, she said like a lot of like the older people that used to know how to do that, um, like the younger generation, the past 20, 30 years, they haven't been doing it. So there's kind of like the older people that used to know how to do it, they're not really there anymore. And there's not really a lot of young people to replace it. So... She can There's make this vacuum. Yeah, and so she's she's like you know one of the few people making these really nice handmade. And I think it would be really unusual to have a, a guy doing it. You know, the guy that would be like you know the, the expert on knitting. You could go on, I mean, you could go on the talk show circuit and say, yeah, this is the one of the world's expert on knitting, and it'd be a guy. Can you imagine that? You'd get a lot of attention, I think. It's kind of one of these things where that's that's a, there's an opening there. You know, like if you try and do something like. You know what I mean? If, if you're a woman, you'd kind of just be one more woman that's into knitting. But as a guy, don't you think you'd have kind of a... You'd have a little bit of an edge, you know? I think so. I think yeah, you, and you could. And you could kind of say these little, like, kind of offhand remarks, you know? Kind of like, oh, that's crap, or whatever, you know? Yeah, and like, <laughs> yeah you know, they, they, they'd hold the bar lower for you, too. You know what I mean? Because they wouldn't, they'd, they'd kind of... I think that might be my because thing. just the fact that you're a guy and you're doing it that might give you a little bit. Of I think credit. so. It's I like, oh, you must really, really love this, like yeah. a lot. Yeah, I think you you get some credibility. You know, I'm really into self improvement in a lot of ways. There's a lot of stuff I wouldn't mind learning. I've always wanted to learn how to play the accordion. Oh yeah. I've always wanted to. Um, I've always wanted to go marlin fishing. 
Marlin fishing. Deep sea fishing. Oh, those like big, like kind of almost like swordfish kind of thing. Yeah, like, yeah. The, the it's big, really hard. You don't catch. It's, it's a very low success rate. I mean, you can fish hours without ever catching one. But when you do catch one, it's supposed to be really exciting. Yeah. That's always kind of something I'd wanted. I've wanted to. Where do you fish for those? Where, where I think it's like Florida. Uh, yeah, you know, the, out on the, the uh, tropical areas and stuff. Ocean, you know, it's kind of a high speed fishing. From what I understand, it's not like you don't use live bait. You've got to. Yeah, I think you, you tow it at a fairly high speed. They're they're a, they're really a, an aggressive. I don't know anything about it. Have you fished a lot? Did you kind of fish I've done growing some up fishing. and stuff? Yeah, I, I used to fish in China a lot. Lake I, Washington. I fished in Lake Washington. I don't think I've ever caught anything in Lake Washington. Yeah, I think yeah. I don't think. <laughs> but I've fished I've been out several times. I fished in Lake Sammamish, and I've definitely caught stuff there. Okay, that's a little easier. Yeah, um, Lake Sammamish is a little bit if you know where to go and you do the. I remember, I used to know guys that we used to just cast for like the salmon. You know the, the you know the that whole Issaquah, the salmon run, the yeah. slough, the yeah, salmon slough. Yeah, there'd be like spawning salmon in there, and they just take treble hooks and they throw them out in the water and just reel it back and just hook them by the side of snagging yeah. fish. I knew people that used to do that. I, I fished. Is that the, illegal or is that? I think it's probably illegal. Yeah, okay. it's got to be illegal. <laughs> I mean, but I knew guys that Because the fish, that's like their last mile to get you know, home, right? And like, like they're almost of, there so they can go spawn and they're just nipping them at It the seems last. like an uncool thing to do, really. I mean, just... But, uh, you know, people do it. Yeah. And, uh... We, we, I remember learning so much as a kid in elementary school. They were teaching us about how the salmon, there's like 500 that are born. They go out to sea for four years and they come back and then only like one out of 100 make it back. Is that right? That's uh, yeah. Well, the Issaquah, the salmon hatchery out there in Washington. That's, have you ever been there? I, I think I, I have. The University of Washington had one we went to. Yeah, that's um, what's cool I, about Seattle area is you've got a ton of these like salmon hatchery places. And it was like a big thing. I think it con- is conservation cool. was like a big you know, deal. If I was, if somebody, you know, people oftentimes if they find out I'm from Seattle, they say, "Hey, what's cool to see in Seattle?" I always recommend that they go to the the salmon hatchery. Oh, really? Because it's kind of something you wouldn't think of, and it's because people of, think the fish market, you know, the the pike place market. Right? Yeah, you know? that's fine. That's okay. I mean, but you're saying you're taking market, a, you've been a, well, a deeper I would go step, to the, right? The root of it, yeah. Just yeah. take it to the hatchery, you know, because that's yeah, it's a pretty cool place. I mean, you can see the, every stage of the life of salmon there, and then you'll see them. You know, it's it's pretty. I, All right, Doug. Well, thanks for coming, man. Hey, yeah, no problem. This is fun. Yeah, I'm feeling good. Cool. All right, man. That's it. Grande controle da Mejotão. 